the epistle text for this Palm Sunday is from the book of Philippians, the second chapter. I'd invite you to turn there if you would to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Perhaps one of the most beautiful, poetic, and uh, perhaps most deeply loved passage of Scripture from the Apostle Paul, beginning at verse 5. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, it is good to see you this morning, and those of you who've joined us online, welcome um, this morning, if you're here in Nampa, if, uh, like me, if you woke up, you may have woken up and seen a few snowflakes coming down. I got tickled that I think it was November sometime when the first snow of the season came. I was in my office actually here. I had the window open because I thought it might be coming. And sure enough, here came the snowflakes. And I went, oh, it's snowing, right? And yelled at everybody in the office. I did not have that same kind of emotion this morning. There was no, oh. It was, oh. But part of me thought it's kind of appropriate uh, for the beginning of Holy Week for it to snow a bit. Because as we've celebrated, as we enter into this Holy Week together, part of keeping the rhythms of the year is to kind of fast at Advent and feast at Epiphany and then fast again during this Lenten season. But part of what we're supposed to feel is the, the kind of darkness and coldness that we enter into this season. But that is being overcome by by spring and by growth and by new life that we will come to celebrate next week. And so I just thought this morning, well, it's right that it doesn't, spring doesn't come easily. Um, but this week, we, we wrestle with what it means for good to overcome evil and for light to overcome darkness and for death to over, or life to overcome death. I, I do want to invite you uh, into the events of this Holy Week. Uh, I would love for you, as Pastor Brent mentioned earlier, on Monday, Thursday, we're going to do something a little bit new for years. When we were in Los Angeles, um, I was part of a kind of seven words and seven songs series, uh, uh, ser um, ser service, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, and we're going to preach those seven words and sing. And so I would love for you to be part of Monday, Thursday. In fact, there's dinner ahead of time. I uh, would love for you to come and be part of that. And I, I really, really, really would love for you, before you come and celebrate next, East, next Sunday and get all dressed up to celebrate the resurrection, that you would come on Good Friday and allow yourself to enter into the darkness and the silence so that we can come ready to rejoice at the fact that death is conquered by the life of Christ. Um, just a word about next Sunday. Again, would love at nine o'clock for you to come and celebrate those 
who are putting to death that old life and coming to this new life in Christ through baptism. It's going to be a blast. And so come next week at nine and celebrate that. And, and we're going to take new members in next week. It's going to be just fun. Um, and then as we get into the Easter season, most of the epistle texts during the Easter season come from the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to preach those over the next uh, six or seven weeks after Easter. And in the midweek, I'm going to do something. I think we're going to call it something to the effect of everything you wanted to know about Revelation, but we're afraid to ask. And so it's going to be fun. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. But this morning we come to this strange Sunday that, be, that in some ways ends at least the Sundays of the Lenten season and moves us into Holy Week. Palm Sunday is strange to me. It's this day which is beautiful in some ways as the kids came in waving their palm branches and they were so cute this morning and, and, and there's so much that is right about today. But Palm Sunday is also a day that's kind of a mixed blessing. It's a day that we come and realize we get this, but we don't get this. In fact, there's a tradition and we, we do it. Uh, we will hang on to the palm branches that were waved this morning, and we'll keep them all year, let them dry out, and next year when we get back to this Lenten season, we'll burn them, kind of grind them up and crush them, and they will become the source for the ashes that will begin Ash Wednesday in the Lenten season next year. It's a way to say we really don't get this. I was thinking this week about how should we feel today, and the way you should feel in worship this morning is, you know those moments where you're kind of in public and you see somebody and they're waving enthusiastically. And so you turn around, you wave enthusiastically back only to realize they're not waving at you. They're waving at the person behind you, right? That horrible kind of, I'm doing the right thing and this is so wrong. And then you just kind of duck your head. I think that's the way we're supposed to kind of feel as we leave worship this morning, that we, we get this, but we don't get this. We, we celebrate him today, but we crucify him on Friday. I've shared about this before, and I, I share it every semester with theology students. There's a sociologist that has become important to me with regards to, and I think about it every Palm Sunday. There's a sociologist by the name of Emil Durkheim, an early sociologist as the field developed. And oftentimes what sociologists do is they want to discover and study people groups and how certain practices became part of that, the life of that community. And oftentimes what sociologists then decided to do is go to places and locations, tribes, people who lived in places, I'm going to use air quotes here, but who live kind of separate from what we would think of as a kind of technological age or an advanced society to see how in the early process of a community development, how that happens. And so Durkheim, like those, went and studied tribes in the jungle. And what he found is that there were all sorts of interesting aspects to their social life together, but they also had a kind of religious life. And from Durkheim's perspective, the religious life went something like this, that there are qualities, virtues about us that we need to pass on or we want to pass on to our children. So if you live in the jungle, you need your children to be brave. You need them to be courageous. If they live, if they're fearful, they're not going to make it in the jungle. And so you need them to be courageous. You need them to be wise. Uh, you can't just eat everything like Esau in the Old Testament. You can't just kind of eat everything that's in front of you. You have to wait. You have to, you have to practice delayed gratification. And so you have to live wisely. 
You have to even, <laughs> Turkham discovered, the tribe even treasure, treasured and valued certain forms of slyness, sneakiness, trickiness. In fact, there's a, a famous missionary book called The Peace Child about missionaries who went to visit, went to live among this tribe, learned the language. They told them the gospel story, and at the end of it, the tribe looked at them and said, tell us more about this Judas. Which, by the way, if we get to the end of this week and you want to know more about Judas, we didn't do this week well. Um, something went well, went wrong. But he realized, they realized, oh, it's kind of the treachery, the sneakiness that they kind of value. And so Durkheim found that. And so inevitably, Durkheim says, what happens is when you live in the jungle, certain kinds of totems is what he called them, certain kind of animals or other natural entities become the embodiment of those virtues. So I think we've done this before, but let's demonstrate your idolatry. Um, when you think about animals, courageous as a lion, yeah, strong as a wise as a, sly as a, there you go. Great idolatry, everybody. Um, so, so Durkheim said, here's what happens is the tribe begins to honor and venerate those totems. In fact, they become objects of worship. Durkheim's conclusion is when the tribe is honoring, venerating, or worshiping those totems, what they're actually worshiping, venerating, and honoring is actually their own virtues that they want to pass on to their children. So Durkheim's conclusion is this, religion is a complex method by which people come to worship themselves. A complex method by which people come to worship themselves. I hope that Durkheim is at least partly wrong. But I say that to you again this morning to say, every time we come to this Sunday, it is a Sunday that exposes our totemisms. It's a Sunday meant to expose our idolatries. It is a Sunday that's meant to say, how many ways have we come today to worship not the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, but a God who looks an awful lot like us? And the values and virtues that we simply want to pass on to our children. And so we take those values and, and put them onto God. And so if you have your Bible still open, we come to this powerful hymn in the middle of an epistle to a church where Paul is struggling to get them to love each other, getting them to embody the, the way that the body of Christ should function in the world. And so he reminds them probably, or at least tells them of something they have sung, they know. And he begins this way, let the same mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus. Here is the text again. Who though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he, and here's the key word, he emptied himself. There's a Greek word here. The Greek word is kenosis. In fact, oftentimes, biblical scholars and theologians even just refer to this hymn or this text as the kenosis hymn. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality something to be grasped or exploited, but he kenosis. He emptied himself and took on the form of humanness and took on the form of a slave and even became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so this morning, for just a few minutes, I want to think about this text and the struggle of Palm Sunday, and it's fascinating to me that we begin Lent every year, by the way, with the gospel reading that is the temptations of Jesus. And I want to think about the temptations of Jesus and our temptations to make God into our own image. So I think that we, even though we probably, if you grew up in church, know this hymn well, I think we actually sort of sing it in our hearts this way. Because he was in the form of God, 
he considered equality with God as something to be exploited. That Satan in the wilderness, as Jesus is there 40 days, re-embodying Israel's life in the wilderness for 40 years, as he is fasting, one of the temptations Satan offers to him is, bow down and worship me, and I will give you control. I will give you all of the nations of the world. It's a temptation for power. And I need to say that power oftentimes gets a very negative connotation, but there is a very positive aspect to, to power. And the positive aspect of that power is this, control. And whether we want to admit it or not, we desperately want control in our lives. I, right now, as I watch the news, as you do each night, and weep over the brokenness of the world, I want somebody to get control. To take control. <laughs> to end this brokenness and this violence, this sadness and grief that we see. I want somebody to take control. I mentioned to you, Deb, and I always think about where do we see ourselves in 10 years? And now where we see ourselves in 10 years sometimes enters into this word, word retirement. And so we've been, you know, meeting with folks who can help us. And we inevitably, when they ask, what do you want when you think about retirement? Inevitably, we say, control. <laughs> right? I want, if I could, I want to control my finances so I don't have to worry about them then. I want to have control over my health so I don't have to worry about that. I mean, I really want control. So I don't want to sound like a complete heretic this morning, but sometimes when I read the temptation text and Satan says, I'll give you control over all the nations, I want to say, Jesus, take it. You will control it far better than it's being controlled. Take it. Control And so there's an important aspect of power that is part of the ministry of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus certainly does have control over the winds and the waves. He, he has control over the demonic oppression of people. He has control to heal diseases. There is a certain level of power and control, but here's the problem. If that becomes the focus of the kingdom and the primary revelation of who God is in Christ, something goes wrong. As any of us who are in, who are married or have children or even have any friends know in relationship, here's a little secret for you. In a relationship, the person who loves the least has control of the relationship. If you lack control in your relationship, withhold love. Because if that person wants to stay in the relationship, you now have control. Congratulations. And I'm convinced that that's at least part of the reason when Satan tempts Jesus to make this kingdom about control of all the events of history, all the principalities and powers, Jesus refuses to make that the central aspect of the kingdom. And so I think we read the text also this way. Because he was in the form of God, he considered equality with God something to be exploited. And so rather than emptying himself, he filled himself and those who are with him. 
I kind of wish that's the way the song went. Like the temptation where Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Which, again, is not necessarily a bad thing. If we could step back into the moment that Jesus was reenacting when Israel was hungry in the wilderness, God gave them the, the manna, the what is it, gave them bread in the wilderness. What is wrong with turning stones into bread? What is wrong with filling people's stomachs? At times, Jesus did that at the feeding of the 5,000. He was brokenhearted for their hunger. And so he took that boy's lunch and turned it into a feast with leftovers and doggy bags and everything. There's something so right as we look at the situation in Ukraine and see all these refugees that we would want to send resource to compassionate ministries and to organizations that are making sure that hungry stomachs get filled. And the needs of broken and exiled and marginalized people get met. There's something so right about that. So why not make this about filling Because if that becomes the central part of the kingdom and the central aspect of Jesus' self-revelation of God, then you and I will always be controlled and driven by our appetites. I've joked about this with you before, but when I was a college minister, the secret was this. If you want to have a college ministry, always have free food. They will show up. It's not all that different as we get older. (laughs) Donuts help in Sunday school. A coffee cart helps you to get here on time. But it's not just those appetites that get fed. It's, It's the appetite, especially in our day and age, an appetite for amusement, for entertainment. Sometimes even... The ways we think about church and community is we want to be fed, but, but when we, and there's something so right about that, but when we mean that, we actually mean we want to be entertained. And if it's constantly about filling our appetites, I wonder about will we ever get to a point where we learn how to feed others and not just ourselves? Another way that I think we we rethink this text is this way. Because he was in the form of God, he considered purity of God something to be accomplished. And so he purified himself. Satan tempts Jesus with throwing himself off the temple using the scripture. If you throw yourself down, he will command his angels concerning you. You will not strike your foot against the stone. Certainly part of that text is about a kind of signs and wonders. Because, you know, if you want everybody to come feed them, but also, man, if you can do cool stuff, if a few people can get healed, they will show up. You can fill an arena. And again, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about our sicknesses and diseases and he healed people, but you'll notice in the Gospels, so often he's a little suspicious that this crowd has shown up now because of these signs and wonders. 
But certainly part of the text also is that he's at the temple and the sign will happen as a way of regathering the people of God in the temple space, in the sacred space. And as we will think about this week, the Pharisees so often imagined the recovery of the temple in the, in the light of purity that the problem is, for the Pharisees, we're not obeying the law. We're not purifying our lives. We're disregarding Sabbath. We're not going through the rituals that make us pure. We've allowed sexual immorality of certain kinds to infect our lives. And so we've got to get rid of these tax collectors and sinners. We've got to be obedient to the law. We've got to purify our lives. And so to be found in equality with God, we sometimes think then for Jesus, the primary motive is then purity. And I know I'm in a Nazarene church and I'm on very thin ice right here. For we are a holiness people. So please don't misunderstand me. Sin will mess up your life. Sin will rob you of life's joy and intention and purpose. It will bear you down. It will destroy your relationships, your family. It will destroy the purposes for which you were created. Sin is bad. Get rid of it. Give yourself no longer to sin, but give oneself and the members of your body, Paul says in Romans, over to Christ. However, when holiness, which can easily begin to be defined as purity, becomes the primary driver of the kingdom, what ends up happening is we began to wonder why in the world is Jesus so lax about Sabbath observance? And what is he doing with all these tax collectors and sinners? And why, by the way, do we put up with you and you and that person and that person? And the problem, as we will think about this week, is how do you get from waving palm branches on Saturday or Sunday to crucifying on Friday? You become a people who think the, faith, the life of faith is primarily defined by purity. And you have to rid yourself of everything that is impure. Now, why does this matter? As I have said to you so often, the reason this matters is because we will inevitably come to look like the God we believe in. And so lean in here for just a minute. If we believe that the central nature of the revelation in Christ and the central nature of the kingdom of God is power, if we think that's the primary thing, and please, this is why it's, tempt it's tempting, is because power is there. But if we think that is central, then we will inevitably be a people who fight to hold on to control and power. And we will inevitably mar our reputation in the world as a people who are more intent on keeping power than following Christ. And we will become just one more voting block in a world fighting a culture war. We will look like the God of power that we want to be a reflection of. And if we believe that the center of the kingdom is about being filled, our spiritual lives will simply be measured by whether our circumstances are good or not. 
I've shared with you in the past that my mom's best friend in life was a woman named Glafer Gilliland who was, I don't know if you should have super saints, but she was a super saint. The most deeply prayerful person I've ever known. Glafer, when she would call, she would always ask the same question when you answered. Hey, Scott, it's Glafe. Hey, Glafe. And then she would inevitably ask this question. How are you and God doing? I realized more often than not when I answered that question, especially when I was young, but probably still now if she would call me from heaven now, I would still tend to answer that question, God and I are doing great if, we were in grad school at the time, if our rent was paid and we had enough money for food and the people at church were being really kind and everything was going great, I would say, God and I are doing great. And if we were out of rent money and the people at church were being kind of cranky, I'd say, God and I are not on the best terms today. The problem when we associate our life in Christ and our pursuit of the kingdom with whether our stomachs are full, our needs are being met, is our life with God will inevitably be judged by the circumstances of our life. And if that's the case, there is no way you can get to Good Friday and look at the cross and say, truly there is the Son of God. To have the eyes to be able to see in the crucified one the revelation of who God is. And if we believe that the center is holiness designed as purity, we will be incredibly dangerous people who were constantly willing to rid ourselves of the unholy. In fact, part of this week is to say again, we will be willing to crucify the one who seems unholy for the sake of keeping purity. A people who are defined and shaped by that legalism, and some of you who grew up in those kinds of traditions, not this one certainly, Some of you can testify to how dangerous that group of people can be and how damaging they can be. And so part of what we have to do this week and part of what I would love for you to do this week, and I know this sounds strange for a preacher to say, part of what we have to do this week is confess our disappointment with God. Because if Palm Sunday is a revelation of who we are, then inevitably we have to come this week and confess the fact that we're really disappointed that God won't take control of these broken circumstances in the world. Come on, God. And we have to confess our disappointment that God is far more interested in the kind of people we become than the balance we have in our checkbook. And God is far more interested in our character than he is in the ease of our circumstances. (sighs) And as we will get to in a moment, we have to confess our disappointment. And I know that sounds strange because, but for many of us who've gotten used to a judgmental God that we get to reflect 
we have, to be, we have to confess our disappointment that that's not actually the God that we have, that we have a God full of steadfast love and mercy who then wants us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's right. <laughs> and so we have to confess our disappointment, but here's the other thing we have to do. Go back to the text. Though he was in the form of God, Paul writes, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and, being be- and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you should circle this next word. Therefore, God highly honored him. Now, I know many of you know this because the first rule of biblical interpretation is this. When you come across a therefore, you should ask the question, what is it therefore? And that's a very important therefore. Because Paul in this kenosis hymn is saying, here is the kind of life that Jesus lived, not one that grasped for power, not one that pursued the filling of stomachs, not one that ultimately pursued even holiness defined as a purity, as purity, but kenosis, the self-emptying love of Christ is what we celebrate. And therefore, God highly exalted him. That's what that therefore is there for. Because it's in that very nature that Jesus is in the very nature of the God of all creation. The self-emptying God who would create people like us who can shake our fist at him and go our own way. A people he would rather love than control. A people he would rather change than fill. A people he would love to become a reflection of his own love. And T. Wright writes it this way. The eternal Son of God, the one who became human in and as Jesus of Nazareth regarded his equality with God as committing him to the course he took of becoming human, of becoming Israel's anointed representative, of dying under the weight of the world's evil. This is what it meant to be equal with God. And as you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this. This is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. His progression through incarnation to death must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, but as the perfect self-expression of the true God. And why does this matter so much? It matters because of the line Paul uses to introduce this hymn, let the same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And so as we enter this Holy Week together, again and again we will be reminded of the ways that we have to let go of all the ways we would love to build God in our own image. and come fully to grips with the fact that it is the crucified one in whom we see the clearest expression of who God is. And we have to come to know and to love and embrace and believe in the God we see in the crucified one so that we too may have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus and to discover what it means to live into the kingdom that will bring healing and redemption and a restoration to all things.
God, help us today. We thank you for the season. We're not real thankful for the snow, but it is a reminder to us that the uniqueness of the kingdom that comes in the death and resurrection of your son, that restoration, that reconciliation does not come easily. But there are forces both without and within that vie and battle against the life that you've called us to. We thank you for the awesome power that you have in your hand. But we thank you that you have not made controlling of our lives or our circumstances the central aspect of the kingdom. We thank you for how much you care about our needs. And we know that you want good things for your children. But we also come today knowing you care far deeper about the kind of people that we become. And we are thankful today that you long to set us free from the bondage of sin. But as Paul would write, why would you leave sin only to give yourself in slavery to legalism? And so teach us this morning, give us the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who though he found himself equal with God, did not consider equality with you something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, kenosis himself. Teach us to be reflections of the Jesus we encounter this week, and may we find transformation and life there. I pray you'd help us be that kind of people. Forgive us for the ways the world looks on and sees us much more interested in fighting wars, being blessed with health and wealth. Creating boundaries that leave people out. May we seek first the self-giving love of your kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me?
reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost. To redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. Knowing this was our salvation, Jesus, for our sake, you died. Oh, we'll bring and praise, so praise the Father. Praise for He is worthy, and praise the Spirit. For He is the God of glory, stone was moved for good for the land that conquered death and the dead rose from their tombs and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who come to the Father are restored and the church of Christ was born and the spirit lived the flame now the gospel truth of Shall I kneel? For we know by His blood and in His name, in His freedom I am free. For the love of Jesus for the Christ, who has resurrected me. voices and I will praise him I will praise him praise the lamb for sinners slain give him glory all ye people for his blood can wash away evil. 
So this week, um, as we journey together, one thing you'll discover, and we discover each year, the disciples weren't very good. When they came to see what the depth and the call of discipleship really looked like, they ran away, betrayed, denied. The bad news this week is we're pretty much like that too. But the good news is the grace and patience and mercy that is extended to folks like Peter and Andrew and James and John that made them leaders in the kingdom, that same grace and patience and mercy is extended to us. And so as we go, may the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus. Who though he found himself in equality with God, did not consider that equality something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. Came to those he loved and loves, took on the form of humanness and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became a slave and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.